visitor, we're glad that you're here with us. I hope the time we spend here together this morning will be instructive for us. It'll be strengthening. We'll all leave here having been built up for the time we've spent here together today. If you have your Bible and you're the type to follow along, I'd recommend you open it up to the fourth chapter of Acts. Acts chapter 4, that's where we'll find the text we want to look at together this morning, although we'll be walking through a, a good bit of the rest of Acts together this morning too. Just to set the scene here, following the uh, events that bring the church into existence on the day of Pentecost, everything is going well for the disciples here in Jerusalem. Peter preaches a sermon to that crowd that's gathered by the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. 3,000 souls are added to the community, and we see an indication of the fellowship that existed, their solidarity and their early success at the end of Acts chapter 2. In verse number 42, we read that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done to the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had needs. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. But as we move into the next event in Luke's narrative, we find the disciples encountering their first resistance. Peter and John go up to the temple at the hour of prayer, and they come upon a lame man who's begging alms there at the beautiful gate. Peter says to him, you might remember, I don't have any silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He heals him in the name of Jesus. And as you might imagine, that gathers a crowd again, much like at Pentecost, and also much like at Pentecost, Peter uses it as an opportunity to preach Jesus. And again, there's a a great response. But we've had so much of this now that the church finally starts to attract the notice of the religious authorities there in Jerusalem. They arrest Peter and John, and they intend to try them for their preaching. And the next day, all of the elites there, the Jerusalem establishment, the high priest Annas, members of his family gathered together, and they questioned Peter and John by what power, by what authority they've done this thing. And the implication is, we didn't give you the authority, so where did it come from? Well, Peter uses this one more time to proclaim Jesus. And at the end of all this, they can't deny that a great miracle's been done, and they're really popular with the people. So they do about the only thing they can do to try to quash the spread of Christianity. They try to just sweep it all under the rug. And they say, all right, we're going to let you on with a warning this time, essentially. (laughs) But don't be preaching or teaching in the name of Jesus anymore. And there's an implicit there, or else. There are going to be serious consequences, much more than a warning next time. Peter and John, of course, ignore that. But upon their release, they go and they join the rest of the disciples and they tell them what happened. And here's what I'm interested in. Notice what the response of the disciples was to the news. In Acts 4, verse 24, when they heard it, 
they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly, in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. What was their reaction? They gathered together and they lifted their voices to God. They prayed. Their first response when they faced this threat of external persecution was to pray. They knew that they couldn't handle what they were facing. They couldn't withstand all of the forces of the Jewish religious establishment marshaled against them without God actively in their corner. And so they prayed together as a community. Prayer is an essential component of our individual Christian lives. And of course, I would encourage all of us personally to be engaged in that. But what we want to think about today, God also intends for his people to meet together each Lord's Day for a time period of worship and fellowship and exhortation and study. And these periods are more than just a time to learn fresh information. We might do that sometimes, but they're also a time period to encourage us and to inspire us to live the way God would have us to live. And when we come together and we sing songs of praise to God and we gather around the Lord's table as we did just a few minutes ago and we study his word, that's one of the greatest blessings we have as Christians. One of the primary things that we do when we come together in these assemblies is to approach the throne of God in prayer. And in keeping with this series of lessons we've been studying for a few weeks now, looking at the activities we do in the assembly, what we're really doing and why we're doing them. We want to think together today for a few minutes about this idea of common prayer. The New Testament gives us several indications of prayer in a congregational setting. Remember what we've just seen, that the disciples here, when they were persecuted, their first thought is to get together and to pray. But that's not unusual for them. This isn't something that's out of the ordinary. If we read through the book, of the book of Acts, we see that this is their typical practice. They spend a lot of time praying. You start in Acts chapter 1, and you find them devoting themselves to prayer immediately after the ascension of Jesus. And in fact, they gather together and they pray together as a community when they're trying to select a successor to Judas. That's at the end of chapter 1. They pray again when they're selecting leaders, when they're trying to pick out those seven who are going to serve on tables in Acts chapter 6. Paul and Barnabas are set apart for their mission work in the church in Antioch by prayer of the congregation in Acts chapter 13. 
And then we find that same Paul and Barnabas appointing elders in every city where they've established churches in Acts chapter 14. They prayed at other times of persecution, much like that one in Acts 4. You look at Acts chapter 12. Peter has been in prison. And after the angel performs his prison break, Peter goes and he seeks out the rest of the church, and they're there meeting at the house of John Mark's mother, and they're praying together. Or you could look a little bit later. It's a smaller group, but Paul and Silas are in prison in Philippi in Acts chapter 16. What are they doing together at midnight? They're praying, the two of them. And they prayed not just at these moments of crisis. They prayed not just at important moments when they're trying to select leaders. Prayer characterized their life together as God's people. At the very beginning of the book, chapter 1, verse 14, they go back to Jerusalem and they're praying together as a community. In Acts chapter 2, right after Pentecost, what we read a few minutes ago at the outset of the lesson, they devoted themselves to prayer, among other things. Prayer was a part of their daily life together, community prayer, prayer together of the church. It defined their existence. Does that hold true for us? I mentioned this in my bulletin article, and this observation isn't original with me. It's a lot easier to get us together to talk about prayer and to study prayer than it is to get us together and actually pray. We're not so good at that. Do we take it seriously, this opportunity we have to approach God as his people, to take our request before him as his children? It's not something that we should just do by rote, out of habit or obligation. Yeah, we get together here every week and we pray. This is a tremendous privilege, a blessing that we have. I want us to think together through some of the implications of what we do when we pray to try to grasp the place it has in our worship. You think about God's people in the Old Testament. Prayer has always had a place of honor, of significance for God's people. And just like a lot of the things that we do, uh, there's continuity with our Jewish and our Old Testament antecedents in prayer. But there's one really important difference between Christian prayer and the prayers we see in the Old Testament. That is, for Christians, prayer is done in reference to Christ. Prayer is by the authority of Christ. Prayer is with reference to the example of Christ. Prayer is in the name of Jesus. The Gospel of John, for one, repeatedly connects prayer with the name of Jesus. Consider some of these passages. John chapter 14, beginning in verse 13, Jesus says, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Or again, I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 15, 16. One more from the 16th chapter of John. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. 
Ask and you'll receive that your joy may be full. Jesus says repeatedly that we talk to God. We ask in his name. What does that mean? Is this just uh, like magic words? Is this a formula that we have to attach to the end of every prayer in, in Jesus' name or in Christ's name? Amen. That's the way most of us end our prayers. No. It's not even something that we actually have to verbalize. When we talk about prayer in Jesus' name, this is a belief. This is a conviction. We approach God as people who believe that only through Christ and only because of Christ can we come to God. We pray believing that it's Christ's mission that we're carrying out here on earth. We pray as those who are committed to the authority of Christ. We pray as those who are committed to following the example of Christ. We pray as those who submit to the will of Christ. Now that doesn't mean we shouldn't pray in Jesus' name either. There's nothing wrong with doing that, even though we don't have an actual command to do it or an example of it in the New Testament. In fact, I think it's a good thing when we say that we're praying in Christ's name because it's a powerful reminder to us and to the rest of the congregation that we're only able to approach God and to talk to him because of what Christ has done. We can only go to God in Christ and through Christ. We pray and we come to God in union with Christ and committed to Christ. But our commitment to prayer isn't only rooted in the name of Jesus. We also find his teaching and his example as regards prayer. Christ had an extremely passionate and committed prayer life during his ministry. And you can see this emphasized in Luke's gospel account in particular. And I just want to walk you through some of this here. He prayed at his baptism, Luke chapter 3. He prayed all night long before choosing the 12 apostles from his disciples, Luke chapter 6. He prayed before his Messiahship was confessed in Luke chapter 9. And then just a little bit later in Luke chapter 9, he prayed at his transfiguration. He prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, Luke chapter 22. And it's only Luke who records that that prayer was so intense that he was sweating blood. He prayed from the cross, Luke chapter 23. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. And his pattern of prayer was such that it prompted his disciples to go to him in Luke chapter 11 and to ask him to teach them to pray. Lord, teach us to pray, they said. And in response, we have what we often call the model prayer or the Lord's Prayer, Luke 11, verses 1 through 4. Now, remember, Every one of the apostles was a devout Jew. They all prayed regularly. When they ask him to teach them to pray, it's not as if they literally don't know how to pray, that they've never prayed before in their lives. But something is different about the way Jesus prays and the way that they pray and the way that everyone else they've ever seen pray prays. There's some secret that he possesses in terms of his relationship with God that they want to be let in on so that it can enrich their prayer lives. And I think we see something of that secret 
when we note the final thing here about Jesus' teaching and his example, since we're in Christ and since we share in his sonship, Paul says that in Galatians 3, verse 26, that we're all sons of God through faith. Well, since we're sons of God, we have the great privilege of addressing God in the same way that Jesus did. His father, Abba. Paul says that just a little bit later in Galatians. Because your sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts that you might cry out, Abba, Father. That's exactly how Jesus taught his disciples to pray. When they said, Lord, teach us to pray, he says, this is how you pray, our Father who art in heaven. In other words, we have that same intimate, that same open approach to God that Jesus enjoyed. Now, when we say that, this doesn't mean easy familiarity. We shouldn't lose sight of the awe and the reverence of God. Remember, what we're doing in worship, Isaiah chapter 6, we want to see God high and lifted up. So if on the one hand, oh, utilizing thee and thou the way that we sometimes have insisted upon and using the stained glass voice when we pray, that might obscure that close approach to God somewhat. We can go too far in the other direction, and I cringe when sometimes I've heard public prayers and occasionally heard people refer to God as as daddy. There's a happy medium in between those two things somewhere. God is our father, but God is also holy and majestic beyond our imagination. And just like so many things in Scripture, those two things stand in tension. But we can approach God openly and confidently and still have reverence and awe for him. I think about what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 4, that we should approach the throne of grace. That's something causing reverence and awe, a throne room. But we should approach the throne of grace with boldness. We're confident that we'll find the mercy and the grace to help us in time of need. Our prayers, our boldness in addressing God as our Father are born of our confidence that we have in Him. Confidence born of our relationship with Christ. Confidence born of our desire to see God's will done. And so we've seen an idea of the important place public prayer, congregational prayer had for the early church. I think we've seen some of the distinctiveness of Christian prayer that we need to keep in mind when we approach God. I want us to consider here finally some practical suggestions, the way that we looked at last week too for the Lord's Supper. Some practical suggestions for our congregational prayers. The first one, and this is the most fundamental, most foundational one, is that those who lead a public prayer in the assembly are not simply leading their own private prayer with everyone else listening in on it. That is, those of us who are out here are not just eavesdropping on someone's prayer that they're making to God. And we've talked before about this false sort of introspective understanding of worship. The leader stands here before God speaking for the congregation. He's the representative of God's people. He's taking all of our requests to God. 
That also rules out any sort of performance-based understanding of prayer. That is, the one who's leading prayer is not just up here trying to show off in his knowledge or how eloquent that he can be. He's giving voice to important concerns that the congregation has. You think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's talking about the assembly there, and he's trying to correct some abuses in their practice. Some things have gotten out of order. And one thing that he says there in verse number 16, he talks about the congregational amen at the conclusion of a prayer. Amen, we still say that today. That means so be it. It's an affirmation. It's the congregation giving their assent to everything that's prayed. So that indicates right here that prayer in the assembly, that's a corporate act. That's the prayer of the entire body here. It's an expression of all of us, an expression of unity. To come up and to lead a prayer for the entire church is something that's a serious responsibility. And those who have that responsibility and that privilege should treat it accordingly. They should put some thought and some preparation into it. But that also means for all of us who are not the ones leading in that prayer, it's our prayer too. We ought to be thinking those thoughts right along with the leader. Prayer is not a time for us to just zone out and wonder when he's going to get done or think about where we're going to eat for lunch. This is our prayer too. Both the leader and the congregation have a responsibility here. We also need to give thought to the content of our prayers. And one way that's been really helpful for me to think about this, I first encountered this years ago, and some of you may have uh, read about this before, some of you may not be familiar with it, but it's based on the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication. If we think about our prayers in those terms, it will help to keep them balanced, not just our public prayers, but this goes for our private prayers too. And not every prayer will contain all four of these elements. In fact, some prayers may focus almost exclusively on one of these four elements. But I think keeping all four of these constituent parts of prayer in mind helps keep us from just lapsing into overemphasizing one or another. And we actually see all four of these components to one degree or another in this prayer in Acts 4 to return to our text. Uh, adoration. Prayer is one way that we express praise to God. We can do that in a couple of different ways. We can describe God. That is, we can talk about his attributes. But we can also do that in terms of narrative. That is, we can talk about the things God has done. Go read through the Psalms sometime, and you'll see how often praise of God there is in terms of reciting his deeds, all the great and mighty things he's done in Israel's history. Well, that's the sort of praise that we see here in this prayer. Verse 24, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. It goes on from there to talk more about it. That's adoration. Secondly, confession. Confession is a word that we use in a couple of different senses. It has two prongs. One is confession of our faith in God, but the other is confession of sin. And what we actually see is that those two things are related. 
when we confess our faith in God, we become more mindful of just how we compare to him. He's holy. He's perfect. He's complete. And we're so, we're so weak and insignificant and sinful in comparison. But at the same time, our confession of sin to him reminds us of the wonderful blessing we have of forgiveness and how great and awesome he is, and it deepens our faith in him. So these two things, confession of sin, confession of faith, they're related in prayer. And we find a confession of faith in this prayer and the confidence that God's going to work in the world down in verse number 30. You stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Then there's thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an opportunity for us to get specific and for us to get personal in our prayers. We see this especially in Paul's letters. Paul's letters are full of prayers. I don't know if you've ever noticed this so much, but he, he opens up almost every one of his letters with a prayer of thanksgiving. And then there are other prayers interspersed all throughout his letters. So this list isn't exhaustive, but just think about a few things that Paul gives thanks for in his letters. He thanks God for his grace, 1 Corinthians 1.4. He thanks God for his indescribable gift, 2 Corinthians 9.15. He thanks God for deliverance from death in Romans chapter 7, verse 25. He thanks God for something as simple, as mundane as food, 1 Corinthians 10.30. Ultimately, he thanks God for all things in Ephesians chapter 5. This one isn't maybe so clear here in Acts 4, but I do think there's at least an implicit thanksgiving in noting how God's deeds have personally affected those Christians there in Jerusalem. In verse 27, truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Things looked bad, but God was the one in control all the time. It was his plan, his purpose. We're thankful for that. Finally, there's supplication. Those are the petitions, the request that we make to God. And maybe when we think of prayer, this is primarily what we think of. Well, from beginning to end, Scripture presents men and women asking God to intervene in their lives, and that's something that he does repeatedly. This prayer isn't any exception. Verse 29 Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Now, I do think the supplication here is particularly interesting and should help guide us. You think about their situation. If you had been in their situation, you're facing persecution here for the first time facing the threat of imprisonment, facing perhaps death, what would we pray for? For some of us, our supplication would probably be, Lord, smite down my enemies. Take vengeance on them. Maybe you're not the fire and brimstone type. So maybe we'd just pray, well, Lord, deliver me from those oppressors. Get me out of this mess one way or another. I don't care how. But they don't pray for either of those two things. They don't pray for deliverance at all. Notice what they pray for. Twofold. Give us boldness. Let us continue to speak your word without any fear 
for what may happen. And two, continue to work in us. Do these signs and wonders. Let people continue to see that your presence is with us. They didn't pray for any sort of relief at all. They prayed for strength. They prayed that God might continue to work in and through them. And I think that's a fantastic reminder to us of what we should be praying for and how we should submit ourselves to God's will. There's one final aspect of prayer I want us to consider as we draw our lesson to a close, and that is its efficacy. We didn't read this verse earlier, but I want you to notice how God responds to the prayer of his people in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God heard their petition, and he granted it. And he confirmed that with the shaking of the house and with a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit. But we don't just know that he granted it from that. We know it because they prayed for boldness. And boldness continues to characterize them throughout Acts. In the very next chapter, the apostles go back out and they're preaching again. And the Sanhedrin calls them to the carpet again. They're not afraid. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen has boldness even though he's facing death. You could look at other examples in the book, but you go all the way to the end of the book, Acts chapter 28, and we find Paul, a prisoner there in Rome, preaching the gospel of Jesus with all boldness, it says, verse number 31. My point is, prayer worked for them. Prayer will work for us. So let's be sure that we draw on its resources when we gather here together in the assembly. Now, maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. You're not a child of God, and that means you don't have this wonderful privilege of approaching God as your father. You need to become his child. How do you do that? Well, as we said earlier, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3 that we're sons of God through faith, and then he says, for as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So I would urge you this morning, if you're not a child of God, to put your faith in Jesus and turn to God in repentance and put on Christ in baptism. Have this wonderful blessing of being able to approach God as your father. Maybe you're here this morning, you already are a Christian, but you've wandered away. Know that God is ready and willing and eager to forgive your sins if you'll simply confess those to him. He's a loving and forgiving Father. Whatever your need may be, if you're subject to the Lord's invitation, we invite you to come now while you stand, while we stand, while we sing.